Hello to all you boys next door, mums and dads, new weds and nearly deads, and welcome to Dangerous Amusements, a podcast where we talk about the music of Elvis Costello. I'm Stu Arrowsmith, and in each episode I'll be joined by a special guest to chat all things Elvis, and I'll be asking them to help me compile the ultimate Elvis Costello playlist. Now remember, don't make any sudden movements, because these are Dangerous Amusements. I'm delighted to say that I'm joined on this episode by a music and culture writer who's covered Elvis Costello extensively. Welcome to Dangerous Amusements, Alison Rapp. Thank you for having me. It's so good to be here. Oh, thank you for coming on. And it's great to see you. And just tell us where you are. You're in New York, aren't you? I am. Yeah. Um, I've been here now for, gosh, a little over, it's like five and a half years now. Um, I'm from Buffalo originally. So I've seen Elvis once or twice in Buffalo. Um, But New York has been home base for me. For quite a while. And a place where you've got to see a lot of Elvis over the last few months, plenty of gigs. Because So you would have covered, what, some of the Gramercy Theatre residency and then a couple of gigs already this year outside of that as well? Yeah, um, so I went to both the opening and the closing night of the Gramercy shows. Um, At at one point I had this kind of harebrained idea that I might go to all 10, but my editor (laughs) disapproved of that perhaps. That was a little (laughs) bit too much. Um, So I did go to opening and closing night which was a lot of fun. And then I happened to also, I actually didn't cover this. I just went for fun. Um, A couple of weeks after that, I went and saw Elvis up at the Capitol Theater in Port Chester, which is about 45 minutes north of New York City. Um, And that was obviously a whole different ballgame because he had the whole band with him and it was a different environment, bigger venue. Um, So I have already seen Elvis three times this year and I'm presuming I'm going to be there again when he comes back through town this summer. So a lot of Elvis so far. Yeah, you're making us jealous on this side of the water where we're still waiting for the first one. I can't to help it. He's coming through New York all these times and you know, I can't I can't I can't say no. <laughs> yeah. Just tell me a little bit about the um the Gramercy shows that you went to and obviously there was there was a full uh, run of them as well. Such a great idea for a, a setup for a tour. Yeah, and it's funny too because um the time that I had seen Elvis previous to that was um the previous summer, the summer of I guess it was 2022 then. Um and I had happened to I ran into his uh public relations person outside of the venue before the show started and we were just chit-chatting or whatever. And I remember him at the time saying like, "Oh man, Elvis has got this crazy idea for for you know, the the new year." And I he explained it to me and I thought at the time man, that's nuts. Like that sounds like something Elvis would come up with like in the middle of the night. And he was like, you know, he found this email from Elvis where he'd listed out a whole bunch of songs and ideas. And he was like, yeah, man, it's crazy. <laughs> so, okay. Well, let me know when that comes to fruition. And I kind of forgot about it for a little while until it came back around in February. And I had never been to the Gramercy Theater actually before that. So I didn't know exactly what kind of a venue. Oh, that's not true. I'm sorry. I just lied on your podcast. <laughs> I, I have seen um, a show there. Actually, the previous year I'd seen Mike Scott of the Waterboys. Um, that was my first show at um, the Gramercy. So it's this kind of almost black box theater style venue. Um, I tried to go into those shows with as little expectation really as possible. I thought it was a pretty harebrained idea. I mean, there's not that many artists who are touring the way that Elvis is today who could pull off something like that, who even have the kind of catalog to fill 10 nights in that way. So I went into it with a really you know open mind. And obviously I'm, I'm a huge Elvis fan through and through. And I remember when I got there and I was sitting next to this guy who, <laughs> bless him, assumed that I had been given the assignment on a whim and that I didn't actually know that much about Elvis. And I had to kind of explain to him like, no, dude, like I I asked for this assignment. You have no idea. <laughs> and he um, it told me, I remember that 
it was like his 110th Elvis show or something like absolutely wild like that. So this was definitely a run for the super fans. A friend of mine was also there who bought tickets to all 10 nights. I mean, these were the the hardcore of the hardcore Elvis fans going to something like this. Um, so I was right at home, obviously. Um, and, you know, you could definitely tell that that Elvis was excited to be doing something like this and to have this kind of freedom in a way that, you know, I don't think he's really ever done anything quite like this before. And the audience was really receptive to it. You know, I think um, doing something of that nature with that kind of, um, you know, that's kind of a lofty ask of fans to go through your catalog like that and pull out a whole bunch of stuff that people maybe aren't even all that interested in hearing. I thought considering the circumstances, you know, he pulled it off remarkably well and that the audiences really had a good time. Of course, I only went to, you know, two out of the 10 shows, but from my perspective, it seemed like everybody had a really good time. Yeah, I was following it with envy over here, people's, you know, <laughs> social media and some of the reports that were going out as well. So, you know, I'd love to see something like that over here as well. So yeah. just to get an idea. So Gramercy Theatre is what? Like a would that be the equivalent of a symphony hall in the UK? That kind of smaller, size of venue? Smaller, smaller. Right. I mean, we're wow. talking about I don't know exactly what the capacity of the Gramercy is. I should probably look that up, but we're only talking about, you know, a few hundred people or something like that. It's quite small. I mean, you've got like a lower level with, you know, know several rows of seats a couple of side like kind of platforms and you know a couple rows that go back up but it's very much kind of a black box sort of theater almost uh setting very very small (laughs) oh well we've got a couple of places nearby around liverpool that he could do so you know hopefully i think you do (laughs) hopefully you might consider something like that at some point as well because it sounded fantastic okay so that's you covering elvis as you know respected music writer alison rap but take us back to young music fan alison rap and when you first got into Elvis's music, how and when did that come about? Yeah. Um, well, I mean, I do always like to say that I'm I do this work and I, I work this job because I am a fan first. And I certainly wouldn't be here doing that without that part of it. I mean, it kind of goes without saying that I heard Allison a lot growing up. Um, my <laughs> parents were definitely both big Elvis fans. Um, my mom in particular, I can remember her talking to me about how when she was in college, um, she had a roommate. Um, who brought home this year's model at one point and played it over and over and over again. And they, you know, my mom didn't know exactly who that was at the time, but she knew that she loved the album. And later on, she could recognize like, oh, that's the guy with the glasses on the cover of this year's model, you know? So my parents were definitely both big Elvis fans when I was growing up. And there was a lot of, there was a lot of Allison being played around the house and in the car, there was, you know, Miracle Man and Angels Want to Wear My Shoes and, you know, tracks like that. Um, were, were definitely really prominent in the household. And, you know, I can remember being a kid and feeling kind of embarrassed and shy when, you know, my parents would put on Alice and sing along to it and stuff. And of course, you know, when you're like an eight-year-old kid, like that song doesn't really mean, <laughs> it shouldn't probably mean anything to you at that age. Um, and, you know, I didn't really quote unquote get it certainly, but I, I liked the song and I liked his voice and that kind of thing. And it wasn't until I you know, got a little bit older and (laughs) had my heart broken and did all those things that like adults do, you know, that I kind of started to gravitate towards that song a little bit more and understand it and identify with it. But I didn't see Elvis in concert until, who it was 2018, I believe it was. I, I tend to preface a lot of these conversations that I have with people about the artists that I cover with the fact that I'm 
23. So I, I'm turning 24 next month. Um, so I come at a lot of this music from an inherently kind of retrospective angle. And, and my perception of these uh, catalogs is a lot different than somebody who literally, like my mom, grew up with these records. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it was 2018 that I saw him for the first time. And he played at this venue here called Brooklyn Steel, which is another, it's bigger than the Gramercy Theater, but it's another kind of like smaller, it's actually an old warehouse is what it is that they converted into a music venue. Um, and I went to that and I was awful close to the front of the stage I remember and I also remember the person I was with at the time after the show we were close enough that we'd gotten up to the front and my friend had said oh her name's Allison and they gave me the set list because of that so there's a little bit of bias happening there and I wish (laughs) I could remember what he played that night but Anyway, so, you know, that was that was my first time seeing him live. Um, and then I think the next time after that would have been when he did the dual um, tour with Blondie. Um, mm-hmm. And that was a lot of fun because it was this big, you know, kind of summer hurrah and everybody was outside having a good time. And that that was that was good. So, yeah, I mean, for me, Elvis is somebody who has sort of grown on me over the years in the sense that, you know, I, I was really aware of him when I was young, but I didn't necessarily understand what I was listening to of course um and it's only been within the last I'd say you know four or five years or so that I've kind of delved deeper into those those layers of Elvis and and what there is to discover there um so yeah I mean that's that's kind of what's led me to to right here to right now yeah what is it about Elvis's music what attracted you in the first place and what's kept you in there and and made you a bigger fan as time's gone on I think for me I like to cynicism I liked his brashness I like his kind of tell it like it is attitude I think that's something that I myself as an individual don't necessarily have as much of and so I liked hearing that in in songs like that but I also have found that you know he's a lot more sensitive than I think people maybe give him credit for and there's a lot of this um you know just overall sensitivity to his songs that I don't necessarily think gets talked about as much there's this sort of dense dark lyrical material that when you start to unpack it you know a lot of that is what I've been drawn to over the years and I think for me what's kept me keeping tabs on Elvis all these years is the fact that he never seems to sit still i mean to me he's almost this like kind of david bowie figure who is constantly like shifting to something else and the people around him can barely keep up and it must be incredibly frustrating for them but for a fan i mean i just love this idea that he's constantly doing something that he hasn't done before um while at the same time still very much sounding like himself um you know i think there's a lot of themes and ideas that have run through his music from 1977 onward but he still feels very fresh and different now in 2023 than he than he did then. Okay, well, you've picked out some of your favourite Elvis songs for us and we'll put one track from each decade onto the Bedroom Alibis playlist at the end of the <laughs> season. So let's kick off with the song that you've chosen from the 1970s. Oh, it's so funny to be seeing you after so long, girl And with the way you look, I understand that you were not impressed but I heard you let that little friend of mine Take off your party dress I'm not gonna get too sentimental Like those other stick of valentines Cause I don't know if you are loving somebody I only know it isn't mine 
Well, I realized that was maybe a, a little bit of a selfish choice of me. I'm sure other people on your get, on your show would have wanted to talk about that song, but I just figured if you're going to have somebody on the show with with the name, you might as you might as yeah, well. Yeah, absolutely. And that's when when Veronica Smith comes on in a few weeks' time, I would yeah. expect her to do the same. You know, it's only fair. It's only fair. Um, I spell my name with two L's, just for the record, and Elvis spells it with one. I just I, I clarify that because I can't tell you how many emails I get from British publicists and things like that who spell it with one L, which is the more traditional spelling in the UK. But um, I was not named for the song. That is not by any means like you know a tie to my birth name in any way. Um, but obviously, you know, I like I said, I've I've spent a lot of time with this song. I literally grew up with my parents singing it to me in the car. And it's only been in the last couple of years that my, you know, I sometimes have to remind myself when I did a bunch of writing on the anniversary of this debut album, which was not all that long ago, I kind of had to remind myself, stop and remind myself that Elvis was 23 when this album was released, which is the same age that I am now. And I kind of had to like take a moment and step (laughs) back and think like, that's nuts like that's kind of who writes a lyric like did he leave your fingers lying in the wedding cake at 23 like that's crazy (laughs) and you know just a deeply haunting kind of song like that has always been what's drawn me to Elvis in that way um and Elvis is uh, or Allison rather is the pinnacle of that um but I also have found you know especially having now worked in music journalism for the last couple of years as I have that I've you know done a lot of thinking about this idea that you can tell a lot about a male songwriter from the way that he writes about women in his songs and and the you know uh, different female characters that end up appearing in male songwriters work um and for me i think allison was an example of one of the first times that i heard a song where the female character has this really kind of dark lost almost atmosphere to her and she was not the hero of the story and she was not necessarily the sex object of the story and she you know, it was a really much more complicated, darker figure in this song than anything that I'd really heard before or or could compare to. And especially this song in comparison to some of the other tracks that are on My Aim is True, when you put them side by side, I mean, you've got a song like I'm Not Angry and he's talking about a woman smiling with her legs, you know, like that's a totally different woman. That's a totally different character than Allison. And, you know, I think for me, I just have always really loved this kind of pain recognizing pain sort of like atmosphere to Allison that it's always really struck me and you know it could have been pretty easy for Elvis to take this song in an entirely different direction and paint this like really um more beautiful more optimistic more hopeful portrait of this woman that he was seeing and writing about um but he doesn't do that you know and I I think that as my life as a young woman has, you know, progressed as it has. I have recognized more of those pieces in myself and I'm listening to it. And obviously I'm incredibly biased because he's literally saying my name in the song. So I, it's very easy for me to place myself in those shoes. Incredibly easy. Um, but I, I, I think that even if that wasn't my name, I would still kind of recognize that character in the song. Mm. Elvis described the song as a premonition, my fear that I would not be faithful or that my disbelief in happy endings would lead me to kill the love that I had longed for. Uh, Recorded with uh, John McPhee, Mickey Shine, Johnny Chambotti and Sean Hopper, produced by Nick Lowe. Elvis said it was rehearsed in a rat-infested country house and recorded in a cardboard box in Islington, released as a single, as we know, and then on the album My Aim Is True in 1977. And I don't know how you feel about this quote from Unfaithful Music and Discipline, 
disappearing ink when Elvis said, the name that I chose was almost incidental. I knew it couldn't be a name of a glamorous, sophisticated woman like Grace or Sophia, or a poetic heroine like Eloise or Penelope. I needed a name that sounded like a girl anyone might know, and Alison fitted the tune. I love that. I I love that. I, I think that speaks to that kind of, yeah, that this is a normal woman sort of, you know, approach to it. I, I, I do really love that. Yeah. And good to know that you, you know, you don't have a glamorous or sophisticated name, according to Elvis. That, yeah, I mean, clearly, gosh. <laughs> Costello also said he had Ghetto Child by the Detroit Spinners and The Wind Cries Mary by Jimi Hendrix in mind uh, when he wrote Allison. It was famously covered, of course, by Linda Ronstadt. And then a more recent cover was uh, earlier in 2023 when Green Day's 1997 demo came out, which was on the 25th anniversary reissue of Nimrod. Sometimes I wish that I could stop you from talking when I hear the silly things that you say I think somebody better put out the big light cause I can't stand to see you this way Allison I know this world is killing He sticks very close to the original arrangement in that, which I appreciated. You know, I think um, his voice in particular sounds really good in that in that song. And I almost wish, you know, there was it was on the album or something like that. But I guess it, it didn't necessarily fit in in the placement of that whole yeah. work. Um, but it, it's a great cover. Yeah, and also for anyone who's not seen it, there's a, a cover of Elvis and Billy Joe Armstrong together on the um, mm. Decades Rock Live show that the VH1 did in the 2000s, which is brilliant because that's also got the, the Fiona Apple version of I Want You and things like that, which is fantastic. Yes. So, yeah, anyone who's not checked that out, I'm sure you can get that on uh, on YouTube. While we're talking about My Aim is True, you mentioned that you did the um, the great piece on the 45th anniversary a little while ago. Was it always your ambition to go into music journalism? Um, no, <laughs> not necessarily. I um, I knew that I wanted to study journalism. I knew that I wanted to go to college for journalism specifically, and I knew that I wanted to move to New York to do that. Um, and I I did that, but I'll be totally honest. I mean, when I got here, I thought to myself, man, I, and also at the time, you know, Donald Trump had just become president. Um, mm. Fake news was something that I, I mean, if I had a dollar for every time somebody, when I told them I was going off to school for journalism, said, "Oh, you fake degree for some fake news or something like that," you know, I I could have paid for my tuition twenty times over. But um, you know, at the time, it was very much something that I thought I really got to be as flexible and versatile as I possibly can, and I still very much believe that, and I hope to be that. But I put music journalism in kind of a separate box, and I thought I can't necessarily pigeonhole myself into a specific niche like that quite early on. And then I um, took a class in college and my professor had us all write reviews about whatever we wanted. And I decided to do an album review and I wrote about Joni Mitchell's Blue, which I know um, Elvis has also talked about in previous interviews before about listening to that album over and over again and feeling really um, shocked really at what was coming out of the speakers on an album like that. Um, anyway, so I wrote this review and I thought, man, that that was fun. Um, and then I um, did a semester abroad and I did one of my very first big pieces. I started freelancing casually on the side and I did one of my first big pieces. I interviewed um, 
David Knopfler from Dire Straits and had a really great time doing that. And I kind of just started slowly filling my way in from there. And now, you know, I knew the right people and it was the right time. And now here I am doing this full time. <laughs> I've been living in style, unaccustomed as I am to the luxury life. I've been living the town and it didn't need back. I've been doing the rounds, unaccustomed. Okay, into the 1980s and the song that you've chosen, a choice I'm delighted with because the final version of this song was the first track on the very first album that I ever owned as a kid. And you've gone for the Costello, Paul McCartney co-write My Brave Face. Mm-hmm. And I have to be honest with you. I mean, I couldn't even tell you the last time I listened to the Paul McCartney's final version that ended up on the album. I just, I, it never even crosses my mind to put that one on. I'm always putting the demo version on first. That was the first track that I heard from that collection of work, certainly. And I love the groove that they settle into on that track. I love the energy of it. It just, it it almost, to me, feels like you're kind of in the room with them, like watching this whole thing go down. I'm completely obsessed with the vocal harmony that they have going on there. I think that Elvis and Paul in particular almost have this kind of similar intonation to their voices. They have this kind of like sort of rounded full effect. I don't know if that's the Liverpool thing or what exactly that is, but there's this kind of rounded full like feeling to their voices. Um, I And I think they blend beautifully together. I mean, obviously no one is ever going to compare to the Lennon-McCartney kind of blend, but I think this is getting pretty close. Um, I'm, I love, love, love the line. I've been hitting the town and it didn't hit back. I mean, that mm. to me has Elvis written all over it. I can't confirm that Elvis wrote that line exactly, but to me that just screams Elvis. Um, and I really love the kind of juxtaposition of somebody like McCartney, who is in my mind very much the opposite of somebody like Elvis. You know, he's not very cynical, he's not very ironic, he's not very sarcastic. Teaming up with somebody like Elvis, who in my mind is a lot similar or more similar in style to um, John Lennon, you know, kind of having this sort of like yang to his yang sort of approach. Um, and I think, in my own opinion, you know, that kind of uh, attitude is the kind of attitude that John Lennon used to bring to the table for Paul McCartney. And in this particular example, that is the attitude that Elvis kind of brings to this song. I think he kind of brings that side of McCartney out and it's palpable in my brave face in particular. Yeah, it's interesting because I think each of them have said if there's a bit that you think is Paul, it was probably Elvis and vice versa as well. So, yeah, Yeah. it'd be be interesting. I mean, I don't suppose either of them would remember everything they came up with for each song, but (laughs) it'd be interesting to to know how they came about. I mean, Paul said that Elvis fitted very easily with the way I work. We sat down and felt immediately at ease like buddies. Elvis wrote the first line and then I'd kick in with the second and then you start bouncing. We just sort of ricochet off each other. And, you know, they're obviously the two guys are just music just pours out of both of them so to be a fly on the wall when they were writing those songs together would have been amazing I know I you know I'm kind of secretly hoping that maybe there was some kind of like get back style footage being filmed or something along those lines during those <laughs> sessions would be really cool but 
maybe not. <laughs> yeah. And obviously those demos had kicked around on bootlegs for a, a little while before they got their official release right. on the Flowers and the Dirt reissue in 2017. And of course, everyone instantly says that could have been a great album on its own, which I don't think it, in the circumstances, I don't think they were ever going to release a minimalist album at that point, particularly no. in Paul's career. But well, it would have sounded amazing and completely out of step with everything else at the time. Mm-hmm. I mean, perhaps maybe the way that the Johnny Cash records with Rick Rubin did a few years yeah. later, they could have been sort of ahead of the curve, really. Absolutely. Yeah, that's uh, Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers working on, on those records with Rick Rubin. I mean, it just that, yeah, totally different ballgame than anything else that was going on and, and perhaps a revival of some kind. Elvis said the demos did seem to my mind to be completely worthy of release because they had such a lot of enthusiasm to him. We sounded like we cared about what we were singing about, but I knew they needed to be banned songs. Ever since you left, I've been trying to compose a baby. Will you please come home? No been for you. As I clear away another untouched TV dinner from the table. So Costello and McCartney recorded a studio version together, but the final recording was done without Elvis, released as a McCartney single in 1989, reaching number 18 in the UK singles charts and 25 in the US. Uh, But Elvis, if he wasn't on it, he did contribute to the sound because it was him who suggested that Paul gets out the Hofner bass and I think it came out of the cupboard with the set list from Candlestick Park still on it as well. And I mean, that has essentially become the Paul McCartney look of the last 30 odd years. You know, Mm. he did really go back to that. And it all started with, with Elvis asking him to play it on My Brave Face. Gosh, I mean, like you said, to be a fly on the wall in that scenario, I, I just, I wonder how casual, you know, what the kind of response would have been to that that question, if it was a question or if it was more like, you know, you really should do this or that, you know, that kind of thing. But yeah, I mean, I, I'm sure Elvis doesn't, doesn't forget that moment. Still Have That Other Girl, written by Elvis Costello and Burt Bacharach, released on Painted From Memory in 1998, and that's the song that you're going for from the 90s. 
Yeah. Um, I love God gave me strength, obviously. I mean, pretty much everybody does, but I think that if I'm remembering correctly, I still have that other girl was probably the first of that collaboration that I heard, you know, from, from that album or from any of that stuff. Um, and I, you know, every time I hear it, I think to myself, man, I really want Elvis to do like a, like a jazz style cabaret, like residency of some kind. And I, I want this song to be in the set list among many other things, but like, I, I, I think maybe in a previous life, Elvis was some kind of Broadway performer or jazz cabaret singer, that kind of thing. And that's that's what this song screams to me. It's so rich. It's so lush. I love his vocal on it. I mean, Elvis, around this time period in particular, his vocal was just off the charts. I mean, it, it has maintained itself certainly over the years, but I have always thought this period in particular, his singing was just phenomenal. I mean, even through the key change that happens in this song, he it is effortless, it feels like. There's a lot of singers who wouldn't necessarily be able to pull something like that off. There may be ugly rumors that I have been lying. There may be angry tears, but there never an interview a couple of years ago I think it was maybe 2020 a friend of mine um, interviewed Elvis where he talked about how his vibrato in his voice is actually part of a heart affliction like he has a heart murmur and that his doctor said might be one of the causes for why his vibrato kind of sounds the way that it does so and, and to me that's just an incredibly like poetic thing about Elvis you couldn't make that up if you tried um and and it really comes through in a song like this because his vocal is so far you know it's mixed very close to the front and I also really love and this is true for a lot of the songs that he wrote with Bert is that he does all of this and fits it all into two and a half minutes I mean this is a song that could have been stretched out into this five six minute long ballad something like that but he doesn't you know he condenses it down to this two and a half minute thing and I I think this is you know, kind of what I was saying earlier about how I think there's a number of themes that sort of run through Elvis's catalog over the decades. And one of them is certainly this idea of forbidden love and wanting someone that you shouldn't. And I think this is, you know, he's the king of that motif, in, in my opinion. He, he does that so well. And this is a really, really good example of him. Mm -hmm. And I agree on the, the singing is just wonderful. And I think it's only underlined with the live recordings from that same period, which of course, a number of them have been released again quite recently on the uh, the songs of Bacharach and Costello collection. Um, I still have that other girl is one of them, but God, the one for me is um, This House is Empty Now with just Bert on the piano and Elvis's vocal. I honestly think it's one of the greatest live recordings I've ever heard of any song. Elvis's vocals are just mind-blowing and then you, Bert Bacharach is doing the work of an entire orchestra with two hands and it just sounds incredible incredible yeah I mean you you kind of can't help but wonder like man it it truly is remarkable that those two found each other the way that they did uh, it, it is nothing short of fate yeah and I quoted this passage in the tribute episode I did uh, for Bert Bacharach recently but the account of writing this song together in Unfaithful Music and Disappearing Inc I'll just read a bit of it again because I just think it's 
it's so evocative of what that relationship must have been like. Elvis says, one day, while writing I still have that other girl, we reached an impasse as to how to get to the full chorus. I was looking out of the window for inspiration when Bert began to play something I'd never heard before. It sounded beautiful, sort of Viennese. I looked around to see that Bert was almost in a trance, and when he roused himself out of it, he really didn't know what it was that he played. And just that picture of him lost in his own music, I just, I'm completely entranced by that image and that passage from Elvis's book. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I, I do. I speak to artists every once in a while who, who say something similar. That effect of kind of like, it's not there one moment and it's there the next, and you sort of pull it down from wherever it is that your head is at. And it, it, I think it's a difficult feeling or scene to describe. Um, but Elvis does it really well in that book. You're listening to Dangerous Amusements. This had better be worth all of the breath I'm wasting. You mentioned a minute ago um, a friend of yours who'd interviewed Elvis, and I know you've not done that yet. Is that something that you, you'd like to do in the future? Is it something that's <laughs> nearly happened uh, by this point? It has not nearly happened. I will be completely honest and say that I, I have not asked. I'm too scared. <laughs> um, but, you know, also, uh, I, I I don't know. I, Elvis is one of those figures that, of course, is on my bucket list for people to talk to. Um, but I think it might be one of those scenarios of don't meet your heroes perhaps i'm i'm not entirely sure he does he does make me pretty nervous and i feel like you know one wrong move would would maybe ruin my entire career perhaps but you know there's no way of knowing i i will never say never but it has not happened yet and from what i know you know that's that's a pretty uh that's a tall order well, you get to cover him extensively at the moment. You've done all of these gig reviews and features for Ultimate Classic Rock and, and other things. And I know people can go and look on your website to read those again because there's some fantastic pieces there. Um, it must be fun to be able to write about Elvis and to write about other artists you really admire because I imagine, without asking you to name names, from time to time, I presume you have to cover stuff that you think, oh, this isn't really my jam, you know? Yeah, every once in a while, things will kind of come across that I'm not necessarily as as jazzed about and there are certainly you know some artists that I've spoken to that I I love and adore and we haven't necessarily had like the greatest interview ever not because you know anything terrible happened but just because you know we we aren't necessarily exactly on the same wavelength we're just two different people um so yeah I mean that does happen from time to time but obviously I'm I'm quite fortunate in what I do that I have quite a bit of flexibility in covering the artists that I do um and you know I'll also say that I've I've um I've been really fortunate to work with the people who work around these artists and they're really great people too. Um, and I, frankly, to still be covering people like Elvis and people like Bob Dylan and Joni Mitchell and all of these different people who are still doing what they're doing at the age that they are is a pinch me kind of moment. <laughs> And I know you had a, a bit of a moment of worlds collided not so long ago because I know you're a huge Bob Dylan fan as well. And you went along when when Elvis performed at the um, the opening of the uh, the Bob Dylan. I've forgotten what yeah. it's called. What, what's it called? The Bob um, Dylan. Um, I want to center. center. Yeah, I was going to call it the Bob Dylan Auditorium. I felt like it should be a popular <laughs> word. Um, um, yeah. Okay. So the Bob Dylan Center opened in Tulsa, Oklahoma, um, almost exactly a year ago. Um, and I was invited out to the opening of that. They had a big opening weekend um, and they had several days of music at that. They had Mavis Staples perform. They had Patti Smith perform and they had Elvis Costello perform on the last night of kind of the opening weekend shenanigans. 
And actually before that show, I had gotten tipped off during the day that Elvis was going to be at the center himself, all the artists who went, you know, who were the center themselves. And um, I went over on that afternoon and I ran into Elvis walking around. He was like, you know, dutifully looking through stuff on the glass case. And I remember he turned around at one point and he said to somebody with him, he was like, wow, this is really something, isn't it? <laughs> it was just very funny to see him kind of like, you know, traveling through the the eras of Bob Dylan's career, being somebody who is intimately familiar with them. Um, so yeah, then that evening he performed at Kane's Ballroom in Tulsa, which is the big kind of venue out there. Um, and he told the, you know, famous story, I'm pretty sure he's told a million times now about the first time that he met Bob, um, which was in the late seventies um, for one reason or another. And I still don't know why exactly this happened the way that it did. Barbara Streisand was supposed to go to this Bob Dylan show and she ended up not being able to make it. And somehow Elvis was the one who took her ticket instead and ended up in her place. I don't know how that happened, but um, he's there at the show. And um, at some point a security guard or, you know, a staff member comes by and says, I, you know, come backstage after the show, Bob wants to meet you. Um, so he goes backstage and, and uh, Bob says, I've heard a lot about you. And Elvis says, I've heard a lot about you too. <laughs> it's just the funniest story to me. And it really got a laugh out of the crowd in Tulsa because it's just, it's, it's very sweet and it's very, you know, it, it's touching. Um, but at that show in Tulsa, he played, um, I threw it all away from Nashville skyline, which was beautiful, very much, you know, kind of an Elvis sort of song. And he also did an absolutely incredible version of like a Rolling Stone, which um, to me, you know, again, just has Elvis's name kind of written all over it. That chord progression, that like vocal delivery, that is very much in mm. his pocket. Um, and frankly, I wish he would incorporate it more in the set list that he does now in his own shows because it was it was really, really quite cool. I mean, Steve's piano playing on that was incredible at that point. And actually, you know, still now he had Charlie Sexton playing with him on guitar. And, you know, you've got Charlie Sexton, who is very, very familiar with Bob, Bob's work and Bob's band and how Bob arranges things. So he stayed pretty true to the original arrangement, but very much put that kind of Elvis like sneer to the vocal lines and that kind of thing. It was really neat. I spied through the spirit of curiosity, all the scandals of each day. I gossip, then I pry, and I insinuate If the failure is great, then it tends to fascinate A tornado dropped a funnel cloud with 20 tons of rain Though she had the attention span of warm cellophane Her lovers fell like skittles in a ten-pin bowling lane But nothing could compare with that explosion of fame Let's move into the 2000s now and take another song selection from you for the playlist. And you are taking us to the 2002 album, When I Was Cruel. And the track is Episode of Blonde. This to me is kind of a textbook Elvis Costello song, in my opinion. Um, there's so much venom to it and intensity. And, and the, you know, I love that he goes from these really spitting kind of dark uh, verses into these more smoother, elongated, like drawn out choruses that, you know, comparison is really, really neat and how he kind of, you know, waffles back and forth between the two of them on top of this incredible Latin flair that's going on. 
I gossip, I pry, I insinuate. I love that line. It's again, very, very textbook Elvis. Can you still hear me? Am I coming through just fine? That like cheeky sort of attitude to it. Um, This is definitely without a doubt, if I was to interview Elvis and if I had some extended time with him, this is a song that I would love to just kind of go through line by line because I feel like every line is wild. And I would love to know where he pulled it from, where the inspiration was coming from. I mean, the artist drags a toothbrush, names the painting Christ last exit to purgatory. Where do you come up with something like that? I would love to know. Um, the reference that he has in it to House of the Rising Sun, tell your children not to do what I've done. I love the vocal in this track too. And I especially love, and I hadn't really noticed this until I listened to it again a few more times before this uh, show. I love that the vocal or the song rather starts to fade out while he's still singing his last verse and he's still, you know, spitting out these lines. It's almost like someone is literally turning the sound down on him while he's still talking, which I just think is really clever and interesting. Um, This to me, I mean, speaking of Bob Dylan is like Elvis Costello's 115th dream or something. (laughs) That's kind of like how I think of it. Mm. I would love to hear you get the chance to interview him about this song as well, for all (laughs) the reasons that you've just said, because this is one puts me in mind of things like Bedlam as well, where you just get this huge torrent of words, where you think, as you say, what's the thread running through it? How do you write that as a song? Like, is this something you come back to over time and add another verse to as, you, as you've come up with it? And also, how do you know when you've finished this song? Because yeah. there's just so many images tumbling over one another, so many words. It's, um, yeah, it, it, as you say, it's very uniquely Elvis Costello. Yeah, definitely. And and uh, again, not to bring Bob Dylan back into this, but in Bob's recent book, Philosophy of Modern Song, you know, he's writing specifically about Pump It Up in the book, but he talks about... I think the word that he actually uses in the book is Elvis Costello's belligerence mm. when he, in his writing. Um, and he talks about what you just said, this, uh, this torrent of words that tends to just come flowing out of Elvis. I mean, he's delivering all of this information at just breakneck speed. And, you know, I think in Bob's book, he means it as a little bit of a criticism when it comes to songs like this, because he's implying that, you know, it's kind of difficult then for the listener to sort of grab hold and stay with Elvis for the whole song. But to me, I mean, a song like Episode of Blonde and Pump It Up, that is almost kind of his blessing and curse mixed into one. I I think there's a lot of benefit to, to having that kind of belligerence, as Bob puts it. But yeah, I mean, this is a good example of that. Be interested to get your thoughts actually on the Dylan book because I was very excited when it got announced, and then when lots of people whose opinions I value said it's not very good, I just made sure <laughs> I'd read the pump it up section, and then I haven't gone anywhere near it since. What What do you make of it? Well, I loved it. I mean, I really did. I actually, um, I was on a. This is kind of lame and nerdy, but I'll say it anyway. I actually, at the time when the book came out, when I got my copy, I was doing my own little Dylan pilgrimage to Minnesota. So I took the book with me. So I was literally reading this stuff while I was on the road doing a whole bunch of Dylan things. I can understand people's kind of aversion to the material that's in the book. It is. To me, though, you know, I loved Bob's Theme Time Radio Hour. And to me, yeah. that book is just the written version of a lot of that stuff. But, I, you know, so, you know, to each their own, I understand people's, you know, it's not necessarily their cup of tea. I think it's it's very Bob. Like, Episode of Blonde is very Elvis. This is, this is very Bob. 
Mm. Episode of Blonde, released in April 2002 on the When I Was Cruel album, recorded in Dublin and New York with the Imposters uh, and a number of uh, horn players as well. Let's move into the 2010s, and you've chosen the 2017 song, You Shouldn't Look At Me That Way. totally upfront and honest again I have actually never seen the film that this song appears in so I can't necessarily speak to the the impact that it has in that film but this for me is another one of those songs that I would love to see Elvis do in some kind of like jazz cabaret (laughs) residency of some kind it has that kind of like Broadway star appeal to me and actually when I was doing a little bit of research around this song I, I ended up reading this piece around the time that the song came out where Elvis was talking about how um, you know, he put a little bit more of his own personal character and experience into it. I mean, he was, is 10 years older than his wife, Diana Krall, when, um, and when they met, you know, he, he didn't necessarily think that that relationship was going to go anywhere beyond just being friends. And obviously then ended up realizing that it was, but I have to imagine that, you know, he got the direction to write a song about, uh, you know, these two characters who are in love and shouldn't be in are different ages. And immediately it was like, oh, like, no problem. Like, I can do something like that. Trust me, like, that's right up my alley. But I, I love a song like this in particular because, to be, you know, it's the exact opposite of the song that we we just talked about, this sort of belligerence, this torrent of words coming out of a song versus you shouldn't look at me that way that really hones in on this one specific moment. I mean, the moment that he's describing in the song happens in, in 10 seconds. I mean, it's literally one moment. Novus does a very good job of zooming in right on that moment and all of the emotions that end up running through one's head in a moment that passes by that that fleetingly and again the vocal on this I mean his voice just sounds really beautiful here the movie Film Stars Don't Die in Liverpool, if I've not said what it was. Um, it's about the life of actress Gloria Graham, who's played in the film by Annette Benning, And it's her relationship with the younger actor Peter Turner, who's played by Jamie Bell. And it came out on the soundtrack in 2017. And Elvis tells this lovely story about the coincidence that when McGuigan and Broccoli, Barbara Broccoli, the producer, Paul McGuigan, the director, when they go to a Costello gig at the London Palladium, and they're going to invite him to write a song for the movie, by sheer chance and coincidence during his performance, of Church Underground, there is a photograph of Gloria Graham which is flashed up onto that fake TV screen behind them, which nobody in that triumvirate of people knew was, uh, you know, a connection between why they were going and what they were going to talk to him about. So, you know, fate, I think, that he wrote that song. Mm-hmm, absolutely. It seems like that's also a running theme through Elvis's careers, you know, a little bit of fate sprinkled in here and there. Yeah. Elvis composed the song on piano and he conducts the orchestra himself and it it feels very much of a piece with Look Now, which would follow up the following year. And, you know, elements of the of the Baccarat collaboration in there as well, I think. You can see the, you know, the family resemblance to some of those songs in a really good way. Yeah, absolutely. She was a part-time waitress with a dream of greatness. 
that nobody knew or even suspected. Though we were sometimes reflected in the slant of a mirror, it was buried so deep and so dear. She caught the eye of a guy passing by. She said, "Why, if I proved to be faithful, you surely know why." So the final song that you are picking for us uh, for the 2020s category, and this is from the album The Boy Named If, which was released in January 2022. A gorgeous song, maybe the highlight on a brilliant album for me, and that's my most beautiful mistake. Yeah, this is definitely one of my favorites on the album too. I mean, I I, I loved the whole The Boy Named If. I mean, I really liked the, you know, uh, the, just the overall feeling from start to finish. But this has definitely been one of the songs that I, I think I've returned to a number of times over, over the last, you know, couple of months. And especially now having heard it, you know, live a number of times, it it is just as strong live as it is on record, really. The band makes it sound fantastic. You know, to me, this is such a cinematic song i mean there's so much yeah. that happens in this in this one kind of moment this one era you can see it all in your head i mean whatever the characters might look like in your head you can see it all right there and to me actually this kind of you know harkens back almost to allison in a way she was a part-time waitress with a dream of greatness you know this idea of a woman who is not necessarily lost per se, but she's clearly caught, you know, between her world and somebody else's or multiple people's worlds. And, and just, you know, this idea of a woman who is um, stuck in some sense or finds herself in a position that she didn't, that she didn't expect to be in. Um, I love the line. There's a hand that lingers a little too long. That's a very Elvis line to me. It's very mm-hmm. subtle. It packs a really like good punch that alliteration just rolls right off the tongue. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think going back once again to what we were just talking about um, with what Bob said and this belligerence style of writing, this torrent of words, this all kind of happens in this song too. To me, it's like watching a, a Hitchcock film or something and noticing things on a second listen or a third listen or a fourth listen that you didn't before. And you want to go back and like, see what you missed these like almost subtle elements that you didn't pick up on the first time around. I mean, even when I was listening to this song before this show, uh, he had a line, what was it? The one about writing her name out in sugar on the counter. That's such a specific, like mm-hmm. prudent detail that I hadn't really, I didn't even know what he was saying. I think the first time that I listened to it, but going back, you know, he's got all of these tiny little cinematic details in it. And I, I love that about this track. I agree. And that device of giving stage direction, if you like, during the song. Obviously, something he did with watching the detectives. I mean, going back to the McCartney collaboration, the song Back on My Feet is very much in in that vein as well. Uh, And he just does it brilliantly here. And you were talking about his vocals before in uh, Painted From Memory. I love his singing on The Boy Named If. I I think he's in such fine voice. Yeah. And, you know, it's interesting because he will deliver these songs quite differently live. I mean, I'm sure you've obviously heard, you know, video clips and stuff of how he's been doing this stuff live. And he also has this like very playful, almost cinematic sort of style to his delivery. When he's doing that, he'll sort of delay his delivery a little bit and like punch things here or there that aren't necessarily the same as what's on record. He plays it up live, which I love. Yeah, we heard some of the tracks live last year, but not necessarily the vocals that went with him at the gig that I went to, unfortunately. <laughs> but, um, you know, we'd like to see him back very soon and uh, and hear some of these songs again. Um, recorded with the Imposters, uh, 
a vocal by Nicole Atkins on there as well and produced by Elvis and Sebastian Chris. Now, I love the Nicole Atkins uh, contributions to it as well. I suppose a bit like with Jenny Lewis on Momofuku, it's not kind of overdone. It's not like, you know, in bright lights, there is a guest vocal from Nicole Atkins. It's just so subtle and services the song, doesn't it? Yeah, completely. I mean, when I first heard that line that she sings in particular, it's so... I mean, I, I heard it and I immediately thought, who is that? Because then she's gone. You know, I, I had to immediately look her up and figure out what her deal was. And it, it made me want to figure out who she was all the more. So, yeah, I mean, it, it, I think it's the, the way that it's sort of slipped in there almost is really powerful. Mm. Yeah, I'm going to go for this as my standout from The Boy Named Div, actually. I, I mean, I love so many tracks on there. The Difference is a great song. I love the title track. Mr. Crescent is a great closer, but I think this is probably the one that I've played more often than any other since the record came out. I think, I think I'm the same way. I think this is my most played from that album. Yeah. Um, I'm just going to pull you up on something because a couple of times you've said you'd love to see him do a jazz residency and a this. But as we've already said, you've had your residency on your side of the I know, water. I we're, know. we're still waiting for ours over here. So you, you, <laughs> you can't have another one before we've had one. You know, and it's funny because I had that thought before that um, he's announced a second show at the Beacon. It was originally supposed to be just one, and now it's two. And he's got Donnie McCaslin, the saxophone, is playing. Yeah, okay, okay. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. All right. I love, I mean, Black Star is one of my top David Bowie albums. I love Donnie McCaslin. Mm. I've seen him perform live a couple of times. So I saw that name on, on the email and I thought, oh, oh that's good. <laughs> then we're getting closer <laughs> to what I'm, what I'm asking for. <laughs> yeah, yeah. How would you sum up what Elvis Costello's music means to you? Wow, that's quite the question. Elvis Costello's music to me is complicated in a variety of different ways. I think I've started to recognize more of the characters in them as I've, you know, gotten a little bit deeper into his catalog the last couple of years. I have identified more heavily with some of the people that are being described in these songs. And I think that that obviously is something that comes with age and experience. I've found that to be really fascinating. And I think to me, above all, and, and I especially was thinking a lot about this when I was seeing the Gramercy shows, is that Elvis is somebody who um, has spent a lot of his life and a lot of his career working toward having that kind of freedom in his career. And I think that's really admirable. I mean, this was somebody who started out as one thing and for many, many years had people expecting him to sound a certain way, to be a certain thing and to kind of carry on in a certain you know style. And um, he's never done that. And I've always really found that to be um, just an admirable quality about him as an artist and as a songwriter and as somebody who is continuing to make that his legacy. Fantastic. Alison, it's been so funny to see you after so long. Um, thank <laughs> you know, right? so, so. You didn't think we were going to get through a whole episode without me using a, a cheap Alison fund, did you? <laughs> That's good. We'll I was it. waiting. <laughs> yeah, we'll get it in right before the end. Uh, but no, listen, thank, <laughs> thanks so much for giving up your time and coming on. It's been great chatting to you. Oh, gosh, thank you for having me. I hope to do it again sometime. That was Alison Rapp. Thanks so much, Alison, for coming on to the show. You can find her Costello reviews and features on her website, along with lots of other great interviews and articles. Visit alisonrapp22.com, two L's in Alison. She's on Twitter as alisonrapp22. 
Follow Dangerous Amusements on Insta and at Dangerous Amuse on Twitter. My website is dangerousamusements.co.uk and always I'm extremely grateful for your ratings and reviews on Apple Podcasts. The theme music for Dangerous Amusements is performed by Gary Mulcahy. That's all for this episode of Dangerous Amusements. Take my hand and let's go to Magic Lantern Land.